Welcome back, Naked Security Podcast. I'm Doug, that's Paul, and what a weekend. That Kaseya thing really escalated quickly, Paul. We may as well jump right in, right, and start this week's podcast at the deep end or at the Independence Day weekend, which I'm sure is how we're going to refer to this attack for years to come. It was kind of like the 1996 movie Back to Front, wasn't it? It was. In, in the movie, Jeff Goldblum... And he had a Mac, remember? He uploaded a virus to the mothership, saved the planet. Uh-huh. Here, the crooks uploaded the virus to the mothership. And from there, of course, supply chain attack. It trickled out to numerous other service providers and customers. Fortunately, it seems, not as many as people might at first have feared. My long weekend was filled with uh, lay people and my friends and family asking how such an attack works, a supply chain attack, how it can affect... Uh, such a large purported number of machines, computers, and companies just by uh, hitting one provider. And I guess the answer is very similar to what Archimedes is supposed to have said when he was discussing the the power you get from a lever. What was it? Give me a place to stand and a lever long enough and I shall move the earth. Basically saying if if you stand in the right spot and you start in the right place, and you set things in motion in the right way, then you get a snowball or an avalanche, or in this case, a you know a supply chain attack. And interestingly, we I think it was on the Naked Security podcast a couple of years ago, we discussed what you might call a an early precursor to this attack, uh, which, as far as we can tell, kind of happened by mistake. But in that case, the ransomware crooks, they were looking for networks to infiltrate in their one-at-a-time living-off-the-land human-led attack way. That was already going back then. And they got into a company that they figured, we've now got the whole network mapped out. And then they realized, wow, this company is a service provider that looks after a whole load of other companies. So we've got free entry to all the other companies. And I don't think they planned it that way. It just kind of landed in their lap. So that was that same sort of leverage. Instead of attacking each computer in a company attack the company that looks after the computers in that company. And in this case, I guess you can take it one step further. You attack the company that looks after the computers at the companies that look after the computers at the companies. So it's it's just an issue of scale. Well, it's kind of like poisoning the well in a city instead of trying to uh, poison the an, an individual house's water supply, I guess. Exactly. Or attacking people's Wi-Fi networks by breaking into their common ISP mm-hmm. instead of driving around the neighborhood and parking outside each house and trying to crack their Wi-Fi passwords individually. Okay, so these uh, hackers get into Kaseya and they upload a ransomware Trojan horse. And so then this is in Kaseya's system that's being used to push out software. Yes, that's the key to this from a supply chain point of view. Instead of having to persuade, say, a thousand people to download this program, you put it somewhere that will push that program out to those 1,000 people because they've already decided to let that happen. So it kind of cuts out the middleman, if you like. So if I'm, if I'm an IT person and I'm using Kaseya, I'm using it because I want to install a bunch of different software and keep it updated without actually having to put hands on each individual machine. I can automate this 
process over and over again. Yes, and instead of having to build your own system inside your own network with your own scripts and your own management tools and learn how all that works, you're saying, well, let me outsource the management part to somebody and they in turn can go to a company like Kaseya and say, okay, you've got all the tools that make that management easy to do well. Now, as we've seen, the weak link in all of that is if someone does poison the well, that water in the well goes and can go an awful long distance incredibly quickly. And obviously, the, the reason this attack's able to happen is because the Kaseya software needs a certain set of privileges and, and leeway to manipulate a system. Yes, this is exactly why in the past, uh, although this still goes on, but it was a much bigger deal a few years ago, crooks were very into a technique that we wrote about often on Naked Security called malvertising, which is where instead of trying to hack every single website that you might visit in a day and putting poison JavaScript on each one of those, hoping that you'll visit at least one of them in the day, they go after the advertising networks that everybody shares. And that way, if they can put a poisoned ad into the ad network and the ad network doesn't realize, that could get distributed far and wide through dozens, hundreds, even thousands of different websites. So that's the problem when you get an attack like this. You have to assume that it could have reached absolutely everybody, even though it probably didn't. And then you have to go into overdrive to trying to find out who did get affected and who didn't. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons why Sophos Labs published its list of IOCs, Indicators of Compromise, on the Sophos Labs GitHub page. So you can go through your network, whether you're a Kaseya customer or not. These crooks aren't just after Kaseya customers. It's the Reval ransomware gang. We've been talking about them for years. So those indicators of compromise are a good way for you to take stock of your own network, even if early indicators are that nothing happened to you in this particular case. I also got a lot of questions just from regular people. Do I need to do anything? Is this, is this, do I have this software on my computer? And the answer is almost certainly not if you're just a home user. I would say that's the case, Doug. This isn't like something that is a known bug in a browser like Chrome that three quarters of the people in the world use that the crooks already know how to exploit. So you really have to do something now. The indications from Kaseya are that, it, are that a comparatively small number of their own, the service providers they provide service to were affected, fewer than 100, I believe and certainly fewer than 2,000 networks all over. And this is software that businesses or companies, organizations typically use to manage their networks, whether they're small, medium, or large. So you're right, it's unlikely that if you're just a home user with a laptop you use for gaming, personal email, stuff like that, you probably don't need to worry. About this one doesn't mean you can say, well, no ransomware is ever going to affect me. So if it takes this to make you think, you know what, maybe I should review the things I ought to be doing about ransomware, like maybe I should go and make a backup onto one of my USB drives and put it in the cupboard. If you did that over the Independence Day weekend, because of the Kaseya story, good on you. Mm -hmm. You did a worthwhile thing, whether <laughs> you were affected or not. Yeah, and just because you're not affected by this supply chain attack does not mean you won't be affected by super, uh, future supply chain attacks. That is, uh, 
you could have software running on. Like I have a, a Dell computer that uses a, some sort of Dell rollout updater that that could be poisoned. Things like that you could still be affected by. Yes. It sounds terribly negative to put it that way, doesn't it? When this happens again, it might mm -hmm. affect you. But I think we have to face up to facts that it is a, a question of when this happens again rather than if, because there are lots of supply chains in the IT industry and the crooks are fiendishly working to poison at least some of them all of the time. And unfortunately, they only have to get lucky once in order to have that cascading effect like we saw here. And it sounds like, and this is one of the most, arguably one of the most interesting parts of this story, that instead of the crooks going after every single company that's been affected, they're saying, listen, why don't you guys just come up with $70 million and pay us that? Then yeah, like it's nothing really. Yeah, we'll release a universal decryption key so you can all get out from under this. That's sort of the way ransomware has been going for the last nearly a decade, isn't it? It started out, the CryptoLocker guys, they wanted $300 and they wanted it from everybody one at a time. And they built this complicated back-end infrastructure that could actually service that kind of, air quotes, business. And if you were in a company and 20 of your users got hit at the same time, then bad luck. There, was no, there were no deals going. You paid 20 times by $300. Thanks for coming. They treated everybody as an individual and they did make millions or perhaps even hundreds of millions doing it that way. And then we saw that sort of the middle ground exemplified by guys like the Sam Sam Crooks that we've talked about on the podcast in the past. They had this, they had this middle ground, didn't they, where they went, look, we're not going after your individual computers. We've gone after your whole network. You can see we scrambled your whole network. Now, maybe you think, dear victim, that and they, you know we apologize sure you do mm -hmm. dear victim you might think that out of your 1000 computers only three of them you really need like two servers and a, the ceo's laptop so you can pay us eight thousand dollars not three hundred dollars you want eight thousand dollars per laptop however we don't think that's going to work so when you've recovered enough laptops that you hit fifty thousand dollars we'll we'll upgrade your license and we'll give you the all-you-can-eat buffet universal decryptor for your network. As everybody probably knows, the way ransomware tends to work these days, there's no more per PC fee. It's basically, we scrambled your whole network. How much do we think we can get out of you? Well, it's $275,000. It's a million dollars. It's $800,000. In one case in the UK, I believe it was an academic institution the crooks knew so much about their network that they knew how much money was in their IT bank account. And they actually, presumably to freak the victim out, that's the amount they asked for, down to the last penny. <laughs> that's how much we want. And don't try telling us you haven't got the money <laughs> because we know you do. That's how much we know about you. There was no, oh, well, we'll give you, we'll let you pay 20% of the money for 5% of your computers. It was an all or nothing. So in a way, it's not surprising that this is the next step up. Well, now you're paying for the, if you like, the universal universal decryptor that doesn't just go per computer or per network, goes for all the networks. I also suspect that the reason the crooks may have done this is that I don't think they're going to get $70 million, do you? Maybe they were hoping it would stir up a bit of infighting and get us, the good guys, pointing fingers at each other. Oh, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. Well, we'll band together. You guys should join in, create a whole load of dissension. 
about how to deal with ransomware. If anything, maybe it has just firmed up our collective resolve a little bit to deal with these things in future without paying, if we can. Let's hope so. If I may recklessly speculate a little bit, but by the time anybody would agree to split this, you know, create a pot of money and put it in, it's going to, it could take weeks or months which of, you know, downtime not having these machines online. So that, that's probably not going to work. And then I don't know if they're, if they're hoping or expecting uh, one of, a government will step up because I, I know that in the U.S. this is the case, and I'm pretty sure in the U.K. it's the case, that the policy is to not deal with, uh, with ransom, to not pay ransom, whether in kidnapping... Yeah, we're having serious discussions in the U.K. at governmental level. Maybe there should be a regulator instrument that says you're allowed to pay as a way of breaking the cycle. Whether that could ever work, I don't know. They're seriously talking about that. So I don't think the government's going to step up. Are the cooks hoping that all these companies will, will get together and start fuming and go, well, like, demand that Kaseya come up with the money? Like I said, I think that the end result might be that we'll finally realise this is us v them. So maybe the end result will be worse for the crooks than they might have expected. But it's certainly, how can I put it, because I love to mix my metaphors, that $70 million thing, almost casually, hey, we'll sell you a, like the uber, uber, uber decryptor, $70 million, certainly put the cat among the pigeons anyway. Mm-hmm. As far as uh, advising people what to do, Kaseya has said to turn off Kaseya for the time being. And then I think we can probably add to uh, check with your, your security provider to see if they're catching this or blocking us. We're blocking it actually in Sophos. We actually can block this multiple stages in the attack chain. There are, mixing my metaphors again, multiple bites at the cherry. So what you want to do, whether you use Sophos or whatever product you use, go and check what detection names and blocking names you would expect to find in your logs if this thing were around, and then you can go and look for those, which will give you a good indicator of whether it appeared in your network at all, and if so, what happened. And also, very many people, Sophos Labs included, are publishing very handy indicators of compromise. And ours lists things like file names and directory names where you can look for where the suspicious content would have arrived, uh, file hashes, file checksums, so you can see if any of those files exist anywhere in your network, and a bunch of URLs or domain names where the malware would communicate to do its dirty work. So there are lots of tools that you can use, whether you're a Kaseya customer or not, whether you're a Kaseya customer that thinks you are actually in the thick of this or not. There are lots of things you can do that will not only protect you against this, they will also help you raise the bar against ransomware crooks in general and indeed against cyber crooks in general. So don't delay, do it today, I guess. All right. That is Kaseya ransomware attackers say pay $70 million and we'll set everyone free on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. We will move along to the print nightmare zero-day windows hole. But first, fun fact. <laughs> yes. They... Well, I said in at the deep end at the start. I was hoping yeah. people go, you mean in at the double deep end? <laughs> we're now at the part where we're kind of standing on our toes and I can just lift our nose above the water, but not quite yet. So, yeah, let's have a fun fact, Doug. Take a little break. Yeah, fun. let's just get, a, get to a little break in here. A woodpecker's tongue is actually a tongue bone that wraps around its skull cavity to cushion its brain while it's pecking wood. So that's why they're able to peck wood without... Did that. Yeah. Because when you see them doing it, particularly if you... Have you ever watched a slow-mo yes. of a woodpecker? It looks painful. It, it is terrifying. 
on that cheery note. It's not good. We better well, go back to we better go back to the nightmare. <laughs> yeah, let's take a break from this and go to something a little less horrifying: the print nightmare zero day hole in Windows. Oh, so uh, I read this and I got about three quarters down and learned how it actually was uh, unveiled to the world. And uh, in my show notes here, I just wrote "oopsie daisy." Yes, that's the long and the short of it, isn't it? For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, in the on the eighth of June, twenty twenty one, which was the June Patch Tuesday, Microsoft published a bug fix for the Windows printer spooler, and one of the bugs they fixed was CVE twenty twenty one dash sixteen seventy five, and a Chinese security company was on the cusp, or they just had a paper accepted at Black Hat, I believe, where they had discovered this vulnerability in the Windows print spooler. And when they looked, they thought, oh, that's the same as ours. It's out in the open now. There's a patch. It's well documented that this exists. Must be the same vulnerability. Well, as we've said before in cybersecurity, never assume. So they basically published a proof of concept of their exploit to show how it worked and, you know, understandably how clever they were, thinking it's okay to reveal it now. People have the patch. And then everyone realised, oops, actually... What they had revealed was CVE-2021-34527, a completely different bug, but it didn't have that, have that number yet because they'd accidentally revealed an unpatched vulnerability that was exploitable not only for remote code execution, where you break into somebody's computer on the network without a password, but also elevation of privilege, where once you only say, thank you, system account would do me nicely. So basically, in the jargon, they dropped a zero day by mistake. And of course, a day later, they went in, oops, oh, oh, don't worry, guys, we've deleted it. <laughs> uh, but this is the internet, mm -hmm. too late. Theirs is a bug now known as Print Nightmare. And you can see why it attracted that name. A new bug works in a similar way, has the same characteristics. But the big deal is the Microsoft patch that came out in June doesn't patch against it. And it affects almost all modern versions of Windows. It's basically, you can put a file where it shouldn't be and then execute it. So yes, it affects pretty much all versions of Windows. The very good news is, particularly if you're one of those people like me that hasn't... I, I think I last printed a document before I last used a VCR. Like, I just don't get the point. Basically, you can just turn the print spooler off and leave it off until Microsoft comes up with a patch. Of course, if you do need to print, then, well, Microsoft have some guidelines about how to configure your network and the print spooler on servers where you absolutely can't live without it. For people who have left the print spooler on, is this, would they need to be specifically targeted by this attack, or is there some sort of Shodan-like site where you could go and see who's got open print spoolers and just go after people that way. Do you know? You could do that. I mean, that's always the problem if you have any anything exposed to the internet that isn't supposed to be. If a vulnerability shows up in it, then the crooks don't need to get into your network first to get into your network further. They just go straight into the buggy print spooler, for example. My gut feeling is if you're at home and you have your home printer exposed to the internet, then you need to deal with that anyway, because you almost certainly didn't intend that to happen. Of course, on a company network where people are sharing the network, 
then you do have the problem that anyone who's already got into the network or already has an account on the network, even if it's a low privilege account, like a regular user, they could use this attack on the network to take over one of the other computers on your network, possibly even including something as important as your domain controller, you know, which looks after security and policy and settings and user configuration for the rest of your network. So there you need to read up on what you can do to make sure that the spooler can't be attacked by people who are already inside your network, but are just looking to be able to extend their reach and increase their power. So there are workarounds, there are minor inconvenience, but if the Windows print spooler is stopped and disabled, which prevents it restarting, even after a reboot, basically you're kind of immune to this bug. And I'd imagine that as soon as they jolly well can, hopefully by next Tuesday, which is July patch Tuesday, Microsoft will have a fix out. Okay, and we do have instructions for how to disable and uh, prevent your print spooler Tweak from... the print spooler. We've shown you how you can do it in the registry with the regedit program, if you like graphical stuff. We've got instructions that work pretty much on any version of Windows with a regular command prompt. And we've also got instructions on how to do it with the more contemporary PowerShell prompt as well. Okay, so that is Print Nightmare, the zero-day hole in Windows. Here's what to do on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. We're going to move along and talk about how a hacker got his computer trespass conviction reversed. But first, this week in tech history, this week in 1923... The Eastman Kodak Company introduced the Cinecodec, the first-of-its-kind home movie camera. The camera shot 16-millimeter film, required cranking by hand. At least two revolutions per second would result in a smoothish 16 frames per second moving image, and it sported a one-inch fixed lens. It was sold as a package for $335, or about $5,200 today. Burgeoning directors got the camera, a tripod, a splicer, and a projector screen. According to the Worth Point Worthopedia, that was roughly the same cost as a Model T Ford Coupe with an electric starter. So for the price of a reasonably equipped car, you could get your own home movie camera back in 1923. It's amazing when you look at some of those pre-Second World War 8mm cameras, the ones that didn't take the full-width film, they're really tiny. Mm -hmm. And you know they don't need batteries. They can't go flat. They run on clockwork. But they're bulkier than a modern mobile phone. And sure, you only get three minutes of, of film and you have to have it processed. But I was amazed at how tiny some of them were. If you compare it to the size of early computers, for example. Yeah. It's certainly the case that early cameras were much more compact than sometimes we give them credit for. Yeah, even this one was about the size of a large book. I mean, it wasn't like overly unwieldy and there's some youtube videos uh, showing the camera off and then showing the camera actually recording stuff and it's it's not bad footage so they're saying you know when everything was sh professional was shot on 35 millimeter film this was meant to be a, a hobbyist just a home use thing but they started using these cameras to shoot war footage because they could be transported around and then use them for news footage later because they were so easy to to get in and out of places without a complicated setup but the price of a new car exactly Mind you, your the equivalent of your Model T Ford with electric starter probably has a built-in dash cam. Yeah, or at least a backup camera. Are backup cameras required by law over there? They just started requiring them by law here. All new cars have to have backup cameras in them. You mean reversing? You mean the thing that lets you see out of the back of the vehicle? I've no idea. I haven't had a car for years. Yeah. 
you don't need a camera at the front or the rear of a bicycle no. and they have the advantage that you can just basically turn your head round and look unfortunately modern cars are quite hard to steal and modern bicycles are just as easy to steal as they were in 1908 okay but well you can't have everything douglas can't have it all and speaking of crime yeah. let's talk about this hacker that got his, and I had not heard of this before, computer trespassing conviction reversed. Yes, different countries call unauthorized access or different states, different jurisdictions have different names for going into a computer and messing around. And in this case, it seems that the, the name of the statute in Georgia is computer trespass. It means basically going where you're not allowed. It doesn't seem there's any doubt that this chap did the naughty stuff that is claimed. And there doesn't seem any doubt that what he did was acting beyond his authority in the IT job that he had at the time. And the story goes like this. New manager was brought in to try and improve the efficiency of some municipal city government. This is uh, in a, a city in the state of Georgia in the US. The new manager X didn't exactly hit it off with employee Y. That ended up that Y got very angry and sort of threw his toys out of the cot, apparently. And that resulted in him having some of his IT privileges removed. I guess they figured, don't know whether we want you carrying on being an administrator. And sadly for him, about six months later, he actually got the sack, he got fired. But it turned out that before, presumably after the argument, but before he lost his admin privileges, he had gone into the email system that they used and in common with very many email systems, whether they're on-premises email or webmail or whatever, this one had, a, I, it doesn't say in the court documents which email server it was, but many of them have that feature that say, send copies of my email to another address. Mm -hmm. And it's very handy to have that. A, if you're going to be out of town, you might want to forward email to a second account, someone else's, or you might want to forward it to another email address even if it's outside, there might be some kind of cloud email archiving service. So although it's a risky feature, because it means making an extra copy of emails that came to you that are supposed to be private, it's very, very handy. And many, if not most, email systems support it. And this chap decided that he would like to know what the boss he'd argued it with was up to. So he forwarded his boss's email to an outside account. And this only came out after he'd been fired. And when they went back, they found out who it was. As you can imagine, the chap was discovered pretty quickly. And it turned out that he'd been accessing this outside email account from his cell phone, even after he'd been sacked. So it's obvious that he'd overstepped his authority. I think that goes with their argumentation. So he was charged and convicted by a jury of interfering with the operation, the data belonging to the city and to this particular employee. He didn't go to prison. He got 10 years probation, presumably time to prove, look, we're, we're watching you, but if, you, if you're a good boy, it'll all end well. Apparently, he didn't like that. He, just, he was determined to appeal his conviction. So this is eight years ago. And after eight years, he finally got his moment in court. And it seems that the argument was that the judges accepted is that the statute under which he was charged which specifically dealt with interference, interfering with the data, didn't really apply because his ex-boss had got the emails anyway. And therefore, interference was the wrong thing for him to have been charged with. 
and in fact there were maybe other statutes that should have been used instead. The majority decision of the judges in the appeal was that although he had exceeded his authority and he kind of spied on his ex-boss, he hadn't interfered with the city's ability to use the data and do their business and the conviction was reversed. So by calling it computer trespass and finding that he didn't actually disrupt the flow of email, he, he kind of got off on a technicality, it sounds like. They kind of got almost hung up on linguistics here that he was charged with obstructing or interfering with the operation of the network, the computers, the data, the email flow. And because if you take the words obstruct and interfere literally, you would stop the person getting emails. And of course, this process doesn't allow that. It's a CC of the email. It's not putting in a separate folder where you go in later and then delete it before the legitimate recipient receives it. And on that basis, he got off. Although three of the judges dissented. Mm -hmm. And their argument was that as far as they were concerned, the word interfere perfectly well applies. It's pretty much what they said. Even though the data reached its destination, it messed with the intended configuration of the network. Data's going to two places instead of one. How does the word interfere not apply in that case? Mm -hmm. But they were the minority. So he's off the hook. His conviction's overturned. He no longer has to tell future employees that he ever had a criminal conviction. But he is on record as having brought this case, which of course has all the gory details in it. And a note by the court, as though they felt obliged to record this, that there's no doubt that in his job in this IT department, he exceeded his authority. One of the reasons that uh, I wrote that article was, I thought, I'd love to know what our readers think. Is this kind of technicality, is that right, that every jot and tittle correctly considered? Or are the dissenters right? And there are some great comments on there arguing, arguing both sides. So if you have an opinion, we'd love to hear what it is. Come and leave us a comment. And as always, you may remain anonymous if you wish. Great. That is U.S. email hacker gets his computer trespass conviction reversed on nakedsecurity.sophos.com if you would like to sound off. And Paul, we have an oh no sent in by a loyal listener named Stephen who begins the oh no with the following. Having listened to most of the excellent podcasts thus far. Oh, great. You can stop right there, Doug. I know. <laughs> and that'll do it for us today, folks. Thank you. No, it's a great story. Carry on. Uh, when he says, having listened to most of the excellent podcasts, I wonder if there are only some that are excellent and he's listened to most of them, or if they've all been excellent and he's listened to most They're of them. They're all podcasts. excellent. He hasn't finished the playlist yet. Okay, Doug. perfect. I, 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 that's how I'm interpreting it. Okay, so he continues, I thought I'd let you know of an incident that occurred many, many years ago when I was a, quote, computer operator in the days when PCs had not yet been invented and terminals were the first innovation in giving access to mainframe computer programs from desks outside the computer room. I already love this oh, story. because I still use an IBM 3270 font in my code editor <laughs> to this day. It's, just for old times sake oh, it's so cool nostalgia just overwhelming with nostalgia these computer rooms were fully air-conditioned rooms accessed through a double door sounds amazing and the wearing of white coats on entry was mandatory also amazing we worked a three by eight hour shift system and one of the jobs to be undertaken at the start of each shift 
was to clean the read-write heads on all of the tape drives. Again, amazing. Disk drives did come into use before I moved from operations to programming, but these had a maximum capacity of 80 megabytes, and each was the size of a washing machine. And that's a big washing machine. That is. That's, Not a UK washing machine. No, that's a US washing that machine. That is a US, yes, one of the... the the big ones you have to get super to top load. like the one you get in the laundromat exactly that kind of thing yeah and the disc drives were even noisier and vibrated worse exciting things oh. stand clear <laughs> <laughs> uh, cleaning the read write heads of the tape drives required the use of cotton buds and isopropyl alcohol this inflammatory liquid was dispensed from large brown glass bottles on this particular occasion i managed to drop one of those bottles in my haste to get the job done had the bottle landed on the linoleum-covered false flooring, it would have probably survived. Unfortunately, I was standing over one of the metal air conditioning vents, which were mounted in the ceiling uh -oh. and in the floor. You see where this is going to provide very efficient airflow and filtering. And as a consequence, the isopropyl alcohol was very rapidly circulated throughout the computer and air conditioning rooms. Needless to say, we didn't hang about before evacuating the building. Oh, no, indeed. Can you imagine how quickly they, I mean, he, was he the first one out or did he tell everyone to run? Because he, he knew what, what had happened. Well, yeah, he was right there. So at least he wasn't going, oh, guys, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, like slurring his words and oh, tripping over, my. unable to, because I presume it wouldn't set off all the usual alarms, oh, like no, carbon no. dioxide overload, fire, no. smoke, and all of that stuff. And you know what's really weird is I've been to the Computer History Museum in San Francisco, fascinating place to visit if you ever get the chance. Yeah. And they have the, it was the early warn, one of the early, I don't know whether it was one of or the early warning computer used during the Cold War that would keep an eye out for Soviet missiles or aircraft coming the short way around over the Barents Strait, apparently. Hmm. And this, it was this very amazing computer for, for its day. And the computer itself and the terminal, it's fitted with ashtrays. Huh. So not only did they have ashtrays, presumably they all took their cigarette lighters in with them. Outstanding. So that would have been exciting. Yes, it would in have. a room that was filled <laughs> with a, a giant carboy of isopropyl alcohol. Oh, man. <laughs> you could run cars on it, can't you? Very combustible. So I think explosive is the word you're yeah, looking for. might be, yeah. Oh, boy. Well, thank you for sending that in, Stephen. If you have an oh-no that you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles or hit us up on social at Naked Security. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth reminding you, until next time, to stay secure. secure.